I remember with much joy as a dad singing that song, perhaps in our evening service, and having my kids start kind of marching in step. It's got that kind of a tune. Um, Whether we're standing, sitting, walking, or marching, we should do all in accordance with the Word of God. And that's what we turn to now for our sermon. We're opening to the New Testament, to the book of 2 Corinthians, and we're beginning chapter 12. So the end is in sight as we've worked through the first 11 chapters of this letter over the course of uh, 30, almost 40 weeks, uh, bit by bit. And we welcome those who might be watching live online or watching the sermon as recorded later on. God bless you. We encourage you to come and be with us, to hear uh, God's people sing and pray and to enjoy the ministry of the local church. We'll read from God's word the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and then preach upon it. This is God's word. The Apostle Paul is speaking uh, and uh, continuing his engagement with those with whom he had some issues. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. On my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word. May he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. The sermon title this morning is Spiritual Ballast, B-A-L-L-A-S-T. I'm not sure if you know what the word means. Uh, If you've ever sailed a sailboat, you probably know. Or even a motorboat, ballast is a part of that. You see, when a boat is made watertight to float on top of the water, uh, that buoyancy... Uh, which can create some instability on top of the water, is offset by adding weight 
to the bottom of the boat. And in some really big sailboats or yachts, you'll know that they have a large keel that goes down deep into the water. That helps them from going sideways. It helps them to go in the direction the boat's pointed. But fully a quarter, sometimes a third of the weight of the ship is in the keel or in the ballast to offset that buoyancy, that displacement, to lower the center of gravity It improves stability and reduces roll or heel. It also provides maneuverability during a ship's voyage. If you don't have the ballast, you're not going to sail well or boat well, whether you're a rowboat, a sailboat, or a shipping barge. Paradoxically, get this, paradoxically, one of the ways they add ballast to a ship is they often use water as ballast. Okay, do you get this? The ship is made watertight to keep the water out so that it can float. But what do they do if they need ballast? Or perhaps you know how submarines operate. They can take in seawater and that helps the buoyancy decrease so it can go under the water. And then they can use forced air to expel that water ballast and the boat can rise. Do you get the picture? Boat on top of the water, water as ballast. Normally, I don't want water inside my boat. And I've got stories to tell, but I'm going to skip them all. That paradox, water inside to help the boat, seems to have a spiritual parallel. The thing that could sink you or drown you coming inside to help you. Paradoxically, God creates challenges for us. And he draws us into positions of weakness paradoxically to show his power and strength and to move us forward as he designs. So, at least in my mind, the concept of ballast is spiritually informative, even as it's uh, a common reality of sailing. And I think what Paul is talking about here is not just his great visions and then the, the pesky thorn that he's given, but the relationship of the two. That they work together. And that's how God works. And God works the same in you and in me. We have some really important applications to make. They're not just at the bottom of the page, meaning you can stop thinking and taking notes when we get to them. Those applications are everything. But to lay the foundation for that, we need to exposit. We need to open up the text. So let's do that. Let's do that carefully. Give me your attention. Let's look together at God's word and see what he'll teach us this morning. The first heading is about God's sustaining blessing as Paul talks about this vision of paradise, verses 1 to 6. You have to understand the context here. Again, Paul was writing to the church that he planted years ago, the church that's now been influenced by some false teachers, men who... uh, kind of strut their stuff and claim to be super apostles. Paul, he's the loser apostle. And and so Corinth is in turmoil. It's being misled. And this is real danger. And they're saying things like, look at Paul. He's so weak. That disqualifies him. He can't speak well. He's got that, that thorn, whatever it is in his flesh. It's very humiliating. I don't think God's really with him. That's the kind of thing they're saying. 
And Paul's writing back to the Corinthians. We've heard this over many weeks. You can read it. It's throughout the letter. No, they're wrong. If anyone's uh, an apostle, I am. He tells how God has sustained him and empowered him. He tells them what's truly important. And here he starts chapter 12 by continuing his boasting. He says, this is the way those guys talk. And it's not very uh, appropriate for Christians to talk this way. But I'll do it. I'll play, I'll meet fire with fire just to unmask these guys. So he's going to continue boasting. He says, there's nothing to be gained of it. But they want to know my spiritual experiences. Those Corinthians who made a big deal out of the supernatural gifts, like speaking in tongues, those Corinthians, well, let me tell them something. I have been in the presence of God. How does he tell that? Well, let's unpack it because Paul doesn't use first person language as he starts in verse two. He talks about, I know a man. It's like someone saying, I want to ask for a friend and they're really asking for themselves. Paul's using the third person here to be self-effacing, to not elevate himself. I once was in heaven. He doesn't want that to be the focus. And you'll see that his boast isn't really going to be in this vision and this experience. His boast is going to be elsewhere. But he begins speaking in the third person about this man. We know he's talking about himself. That becomes crystal clear when we get to verse 7. This passage, the context, absolutely clear. Paul is talking about himself here. And he says, uh, this man was caught up uh, uh, 14 years ago into the third heaven. What does he mean by the third heaven? The Jews had lots of uh, atmospheric labels for the heavens. They had up to seven heavens. And even in our modern day culture, we talk about seventh heaven. It's, it's just it continued on. Paul just says, I was caught up into the third heaven. And he's using the most basic and fundamental, indeed the most universal view of uh, above ground Realities. The first heaven would be the atmosphere, the clouds, cumulonimbus, or clear skies. The second heaven is up where the stars are. We can see that. There are stars and constellations, and the Greeks named them. We know God made them. But the third heaven, that was out of sight. The third heaven was the abode of God. So Paul said, I just didn't travel through the air. I didn't just dwell with the stars. I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or just in a vision, he doesn't know. This man was caught up into paradise. That word paradise actually comes from uh, uh, ancient Persian culture. It originally meant something of a walled garden, a place where you could get away from the troubles of the world, a very happy if not holy place. And of course, it came to be used ultimately for heaven as we talk about heaven. And the word paradise occurs in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The New Testament only three times here. And when Jesus speaks with the thief on the cross, and we know where he was going because of his faith in Christ, he was going to heaven. And then in the book of Revelation, paradise is mentioned a third time in the New Testament. The Old Testament, it it, it was the paradise of Eden, the garden from which man was cast out. 
So what Paul's saying is here, I went to the third heaven. I went to the abode of God. I went to that place known as paradise. He doesn't know if it was a a dream vision or he was physically transported. It, It was that real. But that's not the main point. I had this experience. It's interesting. The very fact that Paul had told no one about this rapture to paradise 14 years earlier showed that he considered private experiences like this as unimportant to his gospel ministry, says Kent Hughes. He he had this experience. I got a a lovely postcard from a family that traveled west, and uh, it's really neat because it's a picture, and it was of a place they went, and that's cool. That's where I've been. I can't wait for the church picnic today. I will show you pictures of me holding my grandson in Buffalo last Sunday. Paul didn't say a word about this rapture experience into the presence of God. Because it wasn't for public consumption. In fact, how does he describe it? He said uh, um, he, to revelations and visions of the Lord is the introduction. And in verse 4, he heard things that cannot be told which man may not utter. What things did Paul hear? He was in the presence of God. Jesus had ascended, so I'm assuming Father and Son were evident to him in some way. Did he hear God the Father speaking to the risen, ascended God the Son? Did he watch that interaction of the Trinity itself? This was not the Holy of Holies in the temple. This was the real Holy of Holies. Paul was there. And, and what he heard was sacred and so special, it could not be uttered on earth. And he was not to do that, and he didn't. He was hearing heavenly sounds. And again, Paul didn't all of a sudden go out and write a book. I had this experience. He didn't start a ministry or go on the talking circuit. That wasn't what it was for. So let me pause and ask, why did Paul receive that vision? Why did Paul have that amazing privilege? It should be evident. I hope you can tell. Paul had it to give him help and hope. To help him persevere because of the difficult calling he's received. Several times over the past many weeks from this pulpit, I have shared my conviction that the Apostle Paul, as described in the Bible, suffered more than any other human being that had lived on the earth. Suffered physically in his body and in his heart, his angst and emotion and troubles. That's something I can't prove, but that's... What appears to be the case. And to have such a task and such a calling, what does God do to help him? He shows him what awaits him. He shows him the risen, conquering, glorified Jesus, risen from the dead in heaven. He hears things. The wisdom and beauty of God. And it helps to sustain him. John Calvin, who was a supremely excellent preacher and pastor, his sermons are worth reading. Calvin says, a man who had been, 
who had awaiting him troubles hard enough to break a thousand hearts needed to be strengthened in a special way to keep him from giving way and to help him to persevere undaunted. That's why Paul was given the privilege of this vision. It would keep the wind in his sails. It would be the north star on those dark nights. He would know God in that extra special way. What a blessing. The sustaining blessing, this vision of paradise. But it's one that Paul will not go on to speak about. And he begins to kind of hint at this upcoming paradox. He said, uh, I'm not going to boast about that. I'm not going to tell. I don't want someone to think of me more highly as they should. Derek Prime says, such spiritual experiences bring near the peril of spiritual pride, which is one of the worst forms that pride can take, he says. It indicates when we fall into spiritual pride. It indicates we have lost sight of the cross and our dependence upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual pride. So even being given that vision, there was a danger to Paul. It was so powerful. If you've read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you know of the power of the one ring to rule them all. And that great power would typically corrupt one who had it. This great vision was given for great encouragement to Paul, but it came and brought near certain dangers. So what is Paul's boast going to be? If he's not going to say anything about what he saw in heaven, if he's not going to tell anything about that and do boasting about that, what is his boasting going to be? I must go on boasting, Paul. You bring this up and you're not going to tell us? I think I know what his great boast is going to be. Indeed, it's part of the motif of the whole letter. And if you've been studying with us, you'll see it right away. But before we move to that second heading, let me just add a pastoral insight here. It was made by Kistemacher. He reminds us that scripture is is a book about creation and redemption. It doesn't tell us a lot about heaven and the world to come. It tells us enough that it's there and we'll be going there and our salvation is as good as accomplished, kept firmly in heaven for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can snatch us out of his hands. It tells us enough. But the Bible isn't a detailed book, travelogue of heaven. The Bible is eminently qualified for here and now to help us here and now in these dark days, in these days of cultural change, in these days where you have questions you never thought you would have. The Bible has words to help you now. So this was Paul's special blessing. But notice that it's followed in verses 7 and 8 with God's safeguarding ballast. This vexing thorn, this water inside the boat, has a purpose. And I call it ballast. But let's see first what it is. A painful thorn. Verse 7 says, 
So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, comma, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Yikes. The Greek word for thorn here, skolops, was a very simple word. We might even think in terms of sliver or stake. One scholar says it's the notion of something sharp and painful which sticks deeply into the flesh and, in the will of God, defies extraction. The effect of its presence, he says, was to cripple Paul's enjoyment of life and to frustrate his full efficiency by draining his energies. God gave him a thorn in the flesh, meaning in the body. I think that helps us guess what it could be, although we don't know what it is, and guessing can go on and on. I have commentaries where you can turn page after page. There's a long list of what could this be. Some, it's very popular to say perhaps Paul had epilepsy. Some go on to say he had bad eyesight and and draining, weeping eyes or some other eye affliction that bothered him so much. And there are some biblical clues that those are possibilities. Others go on to say that it could be a demonic attack or just the dangers and the physical pain caused by enemies and opponents who hurt him. Don't we remember in chapter 11 he talked about how many times he was stoned, how many times he was beaten with rods, how many times he was scourged with 40 lashes less one, a shipwreck, drift in the sea. He, he has this litany of pain. I think that is related to the thorn in the flesh. We just don't know what it was. We do know that it was something painful, debilitating in the body. It was, as Denny says, terribly humbling, if not humiliating. It was something that was observable by others because they used it to make fun of him. They used it to say, oh, look, Paul's under the judgment of God as opposed to under the calling of God and the safeguarding of God. It was a painful thorn, but it was purposeful. We'll see that in just a minute. So what was it? We don't need to speculate. We don't need to guess. In fact, Kent Hughes says the thorns' anonymity has proven a good thing because it allows a broad application to the afflictions that God ordains for his children. What's your affliction? You can relate. If we, if we thought, oh, it's just eyes or it's just epilepsy or it's opponents or it's uh, some other disease. I mean, in the list, dysentery, um, hypertension, all the, the medical catalog in some of these commentaries. Whatever it was, it was painful. Doesn't that tell us something that God's choicest servants still have pain in this life? Heartache? Something that causes us to exert extra energy and takes away our joy and makes life difficult. That's part and parcel of the Christian life, it seems. And on top of what that was, a thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, uh, there was this uh, kicker, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Derek Prime describes it as this, whenever the thorn was acute and being felt and, oh, that hurts, 
No doubt Satan whispered when the thorn problem was most acute, testing us to doubt the integrity of God's character and his promises. Oh, Paul, look at your pain. Look at how embarrassing this is, whatever it is. Does God really love you? What does Satan do? He lies all the time. He tries to get a wedge between you and God. And he tries to take away the promises of God, which are sure and will always come to pass. He casts doubt. Did God really say that? He messes with us. He does that even today. My favorite, one of my favorite psalms is Psalm 73. The psalmist had been listening to the world and looking at the world and thought he was keeping himself holy in vain. My holiness, my righteousness, what's it worth? And then his turning point in Psalm 73. You can read that later. This painful thorn God provides with a purpose. What's the purpose? Paul tells us twice what the purpose is. Right in verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited. And again, at the end of the verse, to keep me from becoming conceited, much caught up in pride and conceit. There's, there's a, in, the, in the original language, there's that excessiveness that would be dangerous. This thorn had purpose. Even as Paul's other afflictions had purpose. It's been a while since we looked at chapter 1. But in chapter 1, Paul was writing to these Corinthians. And he brings up some of those difficult things he had faced. And said they had purpose too. Look with me. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 8. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 8. Easy to find. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Remember affliction? Not a good thing. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That sounds like a mighty big thorn. Verse 9, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us, it sounds like a purpose clause, right? That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. If we were going to die, that's okay, because God can raise the dead. Verse 10, Paul's testimony continues. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again from chapter one. So here he's explaining that this thorn has purpose to keep me from danger. God is able to deal with the afflictions and the the thorns that I have. He has purpose in all of these things. And their purpose was to safeguard Paul. As one has said, Paul has a deep and constant sense of the danger of spiritual pride. Conceitedness, it's not just a a bother or a character flaw. Do you know someone who always talks about themselves? It's a super danger. And Paul's aware of the danger of spiritual pride And he knows that he would fall into it unless a strong countermeasure were kept up upon him. Countermeasure. 
In order for Paul to sail and not get blown over by the blessings, he needed ballast, a deep keel to be able to sail where God called him to sail. Nevertheless, when Paul had this thorn, nobody likes pain. Verse 80 says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul prayed, and we know Paul's prayers are great. Paul prayed not just once, not just twice, not just thrice. Paul prayed. I think it refers to a singular event in prayer. Maybe when this thorn was first perceived and so painful, he prayed and prayed, and God said, it's staying. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in in weakness. The thorn stays, Paul. I've allowed it. Satan's there. He's pushing it in. Salt in the wound and all that. But I'm allowing that to safeguard you, Paul. It's interesting. Paul's three-part prayer reminds us of the pleadings of Moses. Do you remember Moses? uh, He sinned against the Lord. In his case, it was sin. Paul hasn't sinned. And Moses was praying, oh, Lord, please let me go into the promised land. Please, please, please. And the Lord said, enough. It's decided. The Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again, Moses wrote in Deuteronomy. Paul prayed three times and then he stopped because God made his will clear. And it does also remind us of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane at the point of the the nearing pinnacle of his afflictions and rejection, his pain and his sin buried in this world. He's in the garden pleading with his father and, and from his brow came great drops of sweat and blood as he prayed, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. He prayed three times. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And the cup came. Do you see a pattern how God is not afraid to use weakness and difficulty and affliction in his greatest servants, in his son, our Savior. By the way, the Lord does answer prayer. The Lord does answer Paul's prayer. He will answer every prayer. Sometimes we say the answers are negative, sometimes positive. I like the way the the old scholar Philip Hughes puts it. The Lord's answers to our prayers are never negative, except in a superficial sense, because ultimately they are fully positive and bring God's unending blessings in what is good and right and for his glory. We should be oh so careful how we think of prayer. And when we receive God's answer, whether it's positive or negative, God is good. 
The third heading here this morning as we press on is God's sovereign working. Here's the paradox in verses 9 and 10. As Paul says, I've got this uh, thorn. It won't leave me. Verse 9, God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Wow. Power in weakness? God's gracious answer is to talk about his grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Isn't grace just that nice feeling of God? Is that how we view God's grace? You know, grace isn't necessary just at the beginning of the Christian life to be born again. We need God's grace. We're saved by grace. But grace is needed not only at the beginning, but at the middle and at the end. We need grace then, now, and next. And God's grace isn't just a a smile. Oh, look, God is smiling upon you. I think we need to see here clearly that grace is power. Grace is help. Grace is not a band-aid. Grace is the solution. Our God is faithful. My grace is sufficient for you. This wasn't anything new. Isaiah made it so clear. Most of us know the passage in Isaiah 40 that begins with these words. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exalted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint because of the grace of God. When God gives his grace, it's not just a smile from a grandparent. It is power from the Lord of heaven and earth to be in a right standing before him and to face whatever you face. We remember how Paul tried to comfort and and instruct Corinth uh, in his first letter. He said something that a lot of us have memorized as as a help when we're tempted and tried from 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. I have it memorized, but let me read it to be clear. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God gives grace, God gives escape, God gives power, God gives what's needed. His grace is sufficient. My friends, if God did not give us grace, none of us would have a hope of heaven. It is by grace you have been saved and not by works. By grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. That's good news. There's nothing you can bring to God. There's no way you can make yourself righteous. There's no way that you can atone for your sins, past, present, or future. One sin will keep you from heaven. But Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. 
the powerful blood of Christ given graciously. Oh, repent and believe the gospel and receive God's grace. But notice that God says his power is made perfect in weakness. (coughs) The expression to be made perfect is related to becoming mature and, and fully functioning in what it was designed and intended to do. We talk about kids reaching maturity. All the parts are there and all the powers are there even at a young age. So we say they're mature. And hopefully the emotional and spiritual part as well as the physical. God's power is made perfect in weakness. That concept had come up earlier in this very letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Do you remember? As Paul talked about himself and God's power in these words, chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Talking about your body, a jar of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He continues. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. The grace that put Paul in right standing with Christ, the treasure of the gospel, was within him a surpassing power. But it was God's power. That doesn't change. In chapter 12, Paul's boasting of his weakness. Why? Because on the plate of his weakness, empty as it is, sits the glorious power of God's grace. Like a treasure in a clay pot. God's power is made perfect. This is the way God choose, chose to work. And really, this is one of the themes of this whole, lo- whole letter. Power in weakness. Paul can be misunderstood, and Paul says, that's okay. I am weak, but God is great. God's content servant. Do you see how verse 10 ends the passage? For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Uh, That's a big list. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It wasn't just an academic exercise. Paul understood that in his relationship with the living God, this is how it works. It doesn't mean your life is a bed of roses. You never get sick. You never get poor. You never have affliction. You never are misunderstood or have pain. Those things come. But the Christian thrives in this broken world. The child of God is secure and empowered and helped because God's grace is active in him. And God gets the glory. He is content. Paul had learned to hold fast to Christ. As a content servant. Okay, so here are the three closing exhortations. Let's take it home. Let's make this ours. Number one. Realize we need such thorns. Don't don't fight it. That's what I think the scripture teaches. 
It doesn't say go out and puncture yourself. No masochism, masochism here. No self-flagellation. Some religious nuts have it wrong. But we need what God sends us for our spiritual ballast. I don't think everybody in the room believes that. Our American culture, our upbringing, makes us esteem John Wayne more than Paul of Tarsus. I think that's what the Bible says. And Paul's contention with those people in Corinth getting caught up in the super apostles, being dazzled by the supernatural show-off gifts, started thinking that the power was in them. I am, I can, I will, look at me. They thought the thorns were bad. The painful thorns are purposeful. Remember that. Bring your thinking in line with Scripture. And I'm going to linger for one more minute here. We need these thorns. And let me tell you, you don't just need one thorn one time. Boy, was I sidetracked in my study. Sometimes an application hits me more than hits you. This hit me. He said, this sinful bias in us towards pride will not be cured by one sharp lesson. Ever made a mistake and say, boy, I'll never do that again. And maybe we won't. But in this this slippery world of spiritual struggles and temptations, we don't often learn from one lesson. We need some ongoing, continuing education. That's why the thorn stays so long. Because of the way we are. It was the old commentator from 100 years ago, James Denny, who said this. We think we can take warning that a word will be enough that at most the memory of a single pain will suffice to keep us safe. But pains remain with us. And the pressure is continuous and unrelieved because the need of constraint and of discipline is ceaseless. The need is ever present for us to have spiritual balance. Even the mature believer walking with Christ for decades needs spiritual ballast. Various forms, various types of thorns, but we need that until we're home in heaven above. More quickly, I would also remind you, secondly, real contentment can be found. The Apostle Paul is still battling it out with these guys in Corinth. He's been misunderstood. He's had to boast out of his comfort zone. He's had to acknowledge his weakness, that humiliating weakness. And yet he says, what? For the sake of Christ, then I'm content. Faith in Christ not only draws upon power as needed, but it brings a contentment and peace. There's a peace which passes understanding, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. There's real contentment to be found. That is against the the natural man's human psyche. 
We think in terms of strength. I need to bring about my own contentment. I need to take hold. Boasting of weakness, that doesn't sit well with us. But with the ballast in place and the wind in our sails, we'll sail straight. Finally, God gives us real power. Do not forget that grace is not simply the smile of God, it is the power of God. J. Gresham Machen said, the very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. Grace and power are linked. It is heaven's strength for you and in you to keep you. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. And that will see me safely home. May God's word bring blessing and help to you today. Smooth sailing, Godspeed, my friends. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its piercing truths about pain and purpose and grace and strength and contentment. Oh, Father, may we hear all of your word, not just the parts that we want to hear. And may we develop a a biblical worldview. May we have convictions that are biblical as we try to interpret your providence and the things that are happening to us. May we continually trust you May those who are hearing your word today, Father, believe the gospel. And belonging to Christ, may they trust him and be content in him. Father, may your grace be sufficient for even us in these days, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.